Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So Casey asked me to uh, lead the sit this, this week. He suggested that we do a sitting and walking meditation that sort of dusty and noisy out there. So I thought, well, maybe we could do a, a somatic meditation that I've been uh, looking into by this guy named uh, Reginald Ray. So that was my plan, but Wendy called me on Wednesday and said, um, don't do that, because um, um, it can really bring up some trauma for people, actually, doing somatic uh, meditation, believe it or not. And she's right, I've read quite a bit about it, and, and that does come up, and Certainly, I'm not trained to handle that type of a situation. So I thought what I would do instead was to sort of um, talk about what led me to that uh, place, doing this somatic meditation, um, and then maybe open it up to this nice, beautiful, small group for questions and so forth. So um, several years ago here uh, in this group, I started to have some pretty intense heart openings. Uh, it's not uh, unusual. I'll talk to you a lot of you guys about this type of thing. But um, I really felt uh, there's a lot of just amazing uh, energy around my, my torso and so forth. And I felt like there was something that I needed to do with it, like it was actually bringing me someplace. Um, so I talked to a lot of people. And, you know, I was familiar with Qigong and some Taoist stuff and some Reiki, but um, what really attracted me most was uh, Tantra and uh, the Kundalini tradition. So um, I started a quest to sort of figure out what it was, um, where it came from, and sort of uh, what I should, what it might, how I might be able to use it to, to affect change in my life. So you get to hear the story of that today. Yay. <laughs> so uh, the, um, the first thing I started, started to do was to, to really try to figure out uh, where Tantra came from. What does this word even mean? What is it? Um, how did it get to us? And it was, it's an amazing story, actually, um, and one that's obviously um, very controversial. People have different opinions as to what it, what it is and where it came from and so forth. But um, just looking into the history of India uh, was really insightful for me. I, I read this book, uh, The Hindus, by Wendy Doniger, who, uh, it's hard to find good history on India, but this is uh, written from a feminist perspective, which, uh, really touching on a lot of uh, religious issues, which is a perfect sort of um, start for Tantra. And then one of her students, actually, Hugh Urban, wrote a book specifically about Tantra, um, really covering more since uh, about 1600, looking at uh, the tradition sort of since um, the British uh, colonized. And this is written from a socialist perspective. So between the two of them, <laughs> it's very interesting. So. Um, did you say socialist? Socialist, yes. There's a lot of talk about post-capitalism, which I don't really understand. But um, it's a very, very interesting perspective. I mean, so, um, you know, the Dravidians came up through Africa and down through the Himalayas and, and, um, and began to settle in India about 50,000 years ago. And there was a period from about 50,000 to about 10,000 years ago where there were very sort of agricultural people, very peaceful people. Um, and then starting about uh, 5,000 BC, which was a long time ago, uh, the Aryans came through um, the Himalayas and started to mess with them a bit. And the Aryans, nobody really knows who the Aryans are, whether they came from the east or the west. It sounds like, to me, it's probably uh, Persian people, but whoever it was that came through um, were, were more of a warrior culture, and they started to um, sort of um, adopt uh, the, the traditions of uh, the Dravidians. The Dravidians, we can tell from their coins, had um, little yogis on them, 
really just very clear little yogis with sort of things coming out the top of their head, sitting in lotus positions. Really uh, amazing to find these these artifacts. But as the um, as the Aryans came through there, uh, India as we know it today sort of started to form, um, and it's a very classist society, caste system, and the Dravidians to this very day are known as other backward castes, OBCs in, um, in India, and there's a lot of sort of efforts to, to sort of um, bring them up um, in the culture, but the Dravidians sort of kept their tradition all the way through, and a lot of what, um, a lot of what comes to us through yoga and the various traditions actually comes from these considered other backward castes. But um, the, uh, the Indian sort of caste system, they had uh, the Brahmins, and the Brahmins were the keeper of the word, right? They were uh, a caste, it was a, a privileged caste, and they decided what would be taught to who, and so forth. Um, and for, for many years, they, they um, had the Upanishads and the, uh, the Vedas and so forth, and it was mainly an oral tradition. So being a Brahmin really meant a lot of memorization, a lot of teaching people what it was that what was real, what was true, right? That was their, their job. But then about you know 500 BC, things started to change, uh, particularly with the advent of Buddhism. And you can tell from the life of Buddha that he definitely had um, a, a lot of interactions with people that were, that were more from the Dravidian and not from the Brahmin uh, um, stream. And then you've got... Um, Sikhism and so forth um, that started to come into play. And uh, the importance of, of women, of course, maybe my, my view is a little uh, biased from, from reading this book, but uh, Buddhism was very popular with women at the time. Um, and Brahm women could not be Brahmins, and they were sort of left out of the, left out of the stream. So um, the Hindu religion started to, to change. They started to adopt more to try to try to convert, keep people uh, within the stream of Hinduism, and things got pretty interesting over the next sort of um, fifteen hundred years, and that's where a lot of uh, things that we come to think of as, as tantra really started to flourish. Uh, for one thing, um, it became possible to to write reasonable, more reasonable to write, and a lot of the, the tantras were more just not necessarily coming from the Brahmins, but from people who were inspired by the teachings and so forth to, to actually write things down to, to get exchanged. And that's what the word Tantra actually means, believe it or not. Tantra means um, it's like a tract, it's like a religious tract. It's one of these words like in English, uh, track or, or kit that has many different meanings depending on the context. But originally it just sort of meant um, these were, these Tantras were like sutras or just, um, you know, writings of, of, um, of spiritual wisdom. Um, so there was a, there's an era where everything flourished uh, quite a bit and it, it extended all the way from Pakistan to Bangladesh, which is uh, a fair distance. And it started to, to actually um, go up into Nepal and Tibet, which is, is quite meaningful. Um, so about 11, 1200, there was sort of a, a swipe through of, uh, of Muslim um, religion, and that sort of um, tampered things a little bit. Uh, and then starting in about 1600, uh, the British came in, and they started to see things like this, Kali, goddess worship, and so forth, and, and said, well, maybe not. Maybe this is not really something that you guys should be focusing on. And, um, and went back to um, the sutras and the Upanishads and said, okay, you guys, this is, your, this is your classical literature. This is really what you should be focused on. And there was quite a bit of cultural change that was happening in India um, anyway. Uh, and it wasn't just the British that were saying this. There was a lot of the, the Indians that were trying to, to bring people together and form, form a nation and so forth. But there was a, a really turning away from a lot of the, uh, the tantric texts, a lot of the things that, that might be uh, considered more scary. Um, and several British people kind of came through uh, and adopted the Tantras and rewrote them in sort of a whitewashed uh, way that was more palatable. Uh, and that's what we sort of have, have um, learned today. But then at the same time, since they've started to squelch this other Tantric text, other British people came up and said, ah, what's this? 
uh, and started to um, sort of focus on, on more of the sexual aspect of, of Tantra, which is uh, a lot of what um, people think of when they think of Tantra today. And that's sort of, I think, been passed on um, and within um, California culture and so forth. But you know, the, the, um, <clears throat> the sort of stream from the Dravidians to Tantra, uh, to yoga, to chanting and so forth, it's, it's been um, a tradition in India for a very long time, can exist without, you know, outside of these, these formal structures. And I think they've been really passed down from student to pupil and, and uh, lucky us, um, have jumped over to the West uh, since maybe the 70s and 60s. People have started to, to teach uh, here, um, and we've been able to to um, to enjoy the, the teachings. Um, I think that's come through both the, the Hindu Tantra tradition and the Buddhist Tantra tradition. So um, when the British and the Muslims sort of swept through India, they didn't make it up to Nepal and Tibet. So there was a there was pretty concerted effort by the Buddhists in Tibet to sort of cross the Himalayas and bring these texts back to Tibet. Um, and that's uh, got, that got um, integrated into what's called Vajrayana uh, Buddhism, uh, which is sort of um, of the, the body and so forth, um, of, the, of body and somatic teachings. And that, that exists, that's, that's transferred all the way to, to common era without much disturbance. So um, aside from those two books, there's a couple, I read, I've, I've got probably 20 or 30 books on, on Tantra to try to um, find ones that really spoke to me. I found two, Tantra Yoga Secrets, Truly Secrets. And this is um, more in the Hindu tradition of um, there's about 16 exercises, uh, really just um, body exercises in here, meditation on the body and breathing. Um, and then the other one is uh, Reginald Ray, The Awakening Body. And this, this guy is alive today, teaching out of Colorado. Uh, and this is just an amazing book, which uh, with um, body exercises, somatic exercises that you can do, uh, just standard meditation practices that, that uh, I've found have, have really um, uh, unlocked some things that have just sort of been trapped in my body and have managed to sort of take it to the next level for me. Well, I think that the, both of these guys borrow a lot from, you know, um, things that were going on in around 500, 600. So I want to read to you some of the original tantric text. This one is called um, Vaj, Vajnan Habraherva Tantra. And, um, it's a conversation between two gods slash lovers on how to um, how to reach nirvana, essentially, uh, and different ways to meditate. Different. There's a hundred and ten methods in here that you can actually use to get to nirvana. And many of them are through the body. Yeah. Do you know how to pronounce this? Hundred and ten methods in that book or in tantra? Well, uh, in this, in this. Um, in this dialogue, which is, which is this much of this book, actually. So they're all very, very small, short things. And what's amazing to me is how, how much of them I knew before I read them. You know, I mean, they've all, they've all been passed down to us. And there are things that Casey says, the things that Wendy says, things that have really been passed on through, through one tradition or another. So I thought maybe to, to get us into a place, a nice place, I'd um, go through and read some of these. Maybe we can uh, meditate and close our eyes, and we won't do the exercises, but so you can see how these land. <clears throat> With a relaxed body, when exhaling and inhaling, lose your mind and perceive your heart, the energy center where the absolute essence of Bahavara flows. Consider the Shakti as bright, subtler and subtler light carried upward through the lotus stem from center to center by the energy of the breath. When it subsides in the upper center, it is Bhavara's awakening. 
Focus your attention between your eyebrows. Keep your mind free from any dualistic thought. Let your form be filled with the breath essence up to the top of your head. And there, soak in radiant spatiality. Mm. Void, wall, whatever the object of contemplation. It is the matrix of the spatiality of your own mind. Focus on the emergence or the disappearance of a sound. Then reach the ineffable plentitude of the void. When you contemplate the luminous spatiality of your own body, radiating in every direction, you free yourself from duality and you merge into space. If you contemplate simultaneously spatiality above and at the base, the bodiless energy will carry you beyond dualistic thought. When your body is pervaded with consciousness, your one-pointed mind dissolves into your heart and you penetrate reality. See the entire world as the blazing inferno. Then, when all has turned into ashes, enter bliss. Just as you get the impulse to do something, stop. Then, being no more in the preceding impulse nor in the following one, realization blossoms intensely. Contemplate over the undivided forms of your own body and those of the entire universe as being of an identical nature. Thus will your omnipresent being and your own form rest in unity and you will reach the very nature of consciousness. In any activity, concentrate on the gap between in-breath and out-breath. Thus attain bliss. Feel your substance, bone, flesh, and blood, saturated with cosmic essence, and know supreme bliss. At the time of euphoria and expansion caused by delicate foods and drinks, be total in this delight, and through it, taste supreme bliss. Steadily gazing without blinking at a pebble, a piece of wood, or any other object, thought loses all props and rapidly attains to Shiva slash Shakti. When an obstacle gets in the way of gratification through senses, seize this instant of spatial emptiness, which is the very essence of meditation. Before desiring, before knowing, who am I, where am I? Such is the true nature of I, such is the spatial depth of reality. If you perceive the entire universe as phantasmagoria, an ineffable joy will arise. So these are the same exercises that, that uh, these guys threw
one and a half millennia, you know, have, have managed to, to bring to us. Um, and it's, it's pretty amazing. This book is about half emails, believe it or not. It's, um, it's got 16 exercises, and then after each exercise, um, he takes emails from his students to talk about things that are going on and on with them, things that, uh, troubles that they're having from actually doing the exercises, things that have come up in their life. Am I doing it wrong? Uh, you know, fired or whatever. <laughs> it's like, um, because it can be very, very transformative in an amazing way. Um, you know, it's, we store a lot of tension in our bodies. Uh, we store, and our bodies are, are part of our consciousness. They're part of our conscious apparatus, our thinking apparatus. And something that we don't normally tap into. If we just try to do all of our thinking in our head, then we just sort of cut off that, that um, body of wisdom. Um, and it knows more than, than you can consciously think through the causality. You know, if you try to map out the cause and effect of how to get from here to there, what the problems are in your life, you're only going to see what you perceive. But if you get out of your own way and start to l listen to the wisdom of the body, um, you know, amazing things can, can really happen. That's, that's how I feel. That's what I've uh, felt through, through doing some of these exercises. <clears throat> so um, I thought I would also talk a little bit about um, sort of uh, more about what Tantra is. Um, so essentially it's, um, it's the body of wisdom that was sort of in these these tracks during this time period, and nobody would have said, I'm on, uh, on Tantra, like they would have said, I'm Buddhist or I'm Hindu at the time. It was, it was one of these words that gets applied in retrospect um, to sort of a body of knowledge. And it was, as I said, both the Hindu and the Buddhist, but also um, very much in the, the yogi tradition um, and Sikh tradition. So as a word, it's, it's, uh, it's somewhat meaningless. but. Uh, the word also means fabric, threads, texture. I think that sort of gets to um, sort of uh, the pervasive worldview that, that was percolating in all those, those traditions at, at the time. Um, weave, fabric. So it looks at the interconnectedness of, of all things uh, and sort of the futility of, of thought with trying to, to um, map the cause and effect um, goddess worship. Goddess worship was, was very important in the tantric tradition. Um, the idea of the divine feminine uh, devotion, reverence. I think there's a lot of power in seeing God as a woman rather than a man. Actually, you know, it's um, as far as gender stereotypes go. <laughs> um, you know, not, uh, not somebody, not punishment, not justice but forgiveness, loving, compassion. Uh, it's the mother, you know, the mother of, of all things. So that's thing, something that I think is reflected in, in a lot of the, um, the, the goddesses at the time. There's dozens and dozens of them. It was not a renunciate tradition. It's, it, was not, um, it was not something that uh, was primarily practiced through um, monasteries. It was always a householder tradition. It was something where they would actually ask to this day have weekend retreats and so forth to teach people uh, the, the tantric tradition. And then that's uh, largely because it was seen that um, the messiness of life uh, was important to get you to where you needed to go um, and the challenges and so forth. So it's, it's, it's um, and, uh, you know, along with that not being a, a, a renunciate tradition, there was um, a, a real importance placed on pleasure itself, you know, as a, as a, trans as a transformative uh, aspect of life. And not just um, pleasure good things, but pleasure, pleasure of um, anger, the pleasure of frustration, pleasure of being alive, pleasure of the pleasure beneath all of all of existence, to tapping into that, um, and um, you know, almost like expanding the idea of erotic pleasure to everything, 
to, to all sort of living this life like lust, to, to, um, to, approaching, to approaching life uh, through pleasure. So that was, that was something. It's often called the way of ecstasy. But at the same time, it's never thought of as, uh, as indulgent. It's not, it's not um, <clears throat> desire is something that um, was still looked at, um, desire and fear, both, as, as something that was um, a trap. But living in pleasure and, and living fully to experience everything was seen as, um, as very important. And one of the things that, that you see time and time again is sort of um, challenging aversion you know, if you're, a, uh, and this, even if it's taboo, for example, if there was a tradition of, a yogi tradition of not eating meat, then one of the, the aversion-busting things was to eat meat, to drink, mm -hmm. to, uh, to actually uh, face those things that you're, you're trying to avoid, um, and even if they're associated with pleasure. So it's really definitely not something where people are locking themselves up as monastery, in monasteries. And let's see, the last thing I had uh, was um, the body's consciousness again. Um, power of the world beyond, beyond thought. Um, and that's where, that's where I've um, really been able to, to find some, some nice things myself. So. Okay. Did you say that last part again? Yeah. What did you say you really found a lot? I just, uh, what yeah. did I say? Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> One of the exercises that, that um, is in both books, actually, it's called, it's called yoni breathing in the Hindu tradition and um, the um, uh, yin breathing in the, in the Buddhist tradition, which uh, hold your hands above your lower belly, below your uh, belly button, and you imagine yourself breathing into, into your belly button or into the space a few inches below your belly button. And it's, um, and I swear to God, eventually you start feeling like there's a little baby whirlpool in your stomach that's just sucking in that air. You can almost feel the cool air, and that's something that they, they talk about. Uh, and then the energy that, that comes into your body and you know through your spine and gets circulated. Um, you know, you can use that as a meditation certainly to quiet the mind and to bring you to sort of a, a place of bliss. But you know, more so, it brings your body your attention away from your mind and into your body on a daily basis, um, which gives you a little more resilience, I guess, in terms of um, life's perturbations. But also, I think it allows you to sort of tap into that, that wisdom. How long did I go? What time is it? I'm done. I talked too fast. Oh, it looks like it's about 11 anyway. So, do you want to break into groups or take questions as much as I know? I have a question yeah. for you. Um, I, this is going to sound not believable, but it really happened. I accidentally discovered tantric sex a couple years ago by accident, literally discovering it. And so now I'm reading about just the sexual aspects of the practice. But I've been like a diehard atheist my whole life, so opening up to more religious or metaphysical stuff is very new to me. But I'm like hooked, <laughs> obviously. Right. Uh, life changing. It changed both of our entire like personalities uh -huh. um, and like life trajectory. Um, mm. But so I'm curious, which of those books would be best as a bridging one for me, who doesn't want me yet yet to hear too much of the myths and the stories, or is that do I just need to like? Well, there's not really very there's not very many myths or stories in, in any of these. So, so it's like there's um, there's very few sexual uh, aspects to either yeah, of these books. The sexual stuff is good. It's the uh -huh. gods and stuff. But no, that's like what I got. <laughs> that's why I doubt it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's the gods and stuff. Right. The, right. The mythology and sometimes, especially both in Hinduism and Buddhism, um, I find things that. Like archaic cultural things instead of um, mythology. Yeah. 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 So I 
guess uh, I guess all those books are probably good, but which one do you think would be one for me? I've, I'm right now I'm um, three quarters through Diana Richardson's The Heart of Tantric Sex, mm -hmm. which is fantastic, um, and it validates for me that that is the experience I had because literally every single one of her practices, I'm like, yes, yes, that was right, 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 right. Um, but I guess what would be a next phase for me so that I can incorporate tantra not just as a sexual practice but also as like a meditation practice and something that you can extend to other aspects of your life as well. A recovering atheist. <laughs> anti-theist actually. A recovering anti-theist. It sounds like you're doing just fine. <laughs> Which of these books? Um, this one is pretty, uh, this one is pretty incredible. It's long, it's, uh, it's, written, it's written for women. Uh, you can tell through the, you know, it doesn't actually say that on the cover, but um, through some of the exercises. Um, it's called Tantra Yoga Secrets. Um, and I would, you know, I would recommend that if, uh, you know, explorations through the body to the next yeah. sort of spiritual levels. It's, it's quite good. Okay. And there's some other books I've, I've got that are kind of interesting that I can talk to you about. What you said um, a certain practice you didn't want to teach right now because people sometimes trauma comes up. Yeah. Um, that is in line with this book that I have. You've probably heard of it. Some of you. The body keeps the score, and it's just a science book, but it talks about how trauma is stored in the body, and the only way to work it out is to get back in touch with your body because when you have trauma, you disassociate from your body. So practices like yoga and meditation, which brings you back into it brings up the trauma, but also heals it. Like, that is the medicine. Right. And it's just a science book, so it works for even anti-theists like myself. Um, but yeah, that's like what these ancient practices have been teaching all along. And that's so yeah. fascinating and beautiful for me to see. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I, I think they do a better job of it, actually, than... than um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, because they were working on it for far longer than right, their right, science right. has been. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, you do have to be careful. If you do have things in your life that, you know, you don't want to touch any uh, wires without a support network. Well, they say just have a good teacher, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned something about the gap between in-breath and out-breath. Mm -hmm. How do you get the, what is that when you go there? What do you concentrate on? Well, that would be literally the, the, the time between the in-breath and the time between the out-breath. <laughs> so, well, yeah, that, right. how, right. how do you, I mean, what do you perceive that? What are you looking for? How do you know that you're there? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. How do you know that you're there? What are you looking for? Um, I guess one of the, the, the pieces of magic, I think, that are in these books is it's... it's um, they're prescriptive exercises that should be um, explored without your mind. You just do it, you know. Um, and that's, an, that's a good one to, to choose, actually, because that's one that we've done here quite a bit. And it's, it's literally, um, you know, you set your attention in the, the breath coming in. As you do more and more, you can sort of take deeper and deeper breaths. Uh, and then there's a, sort of a pregnant pause between there and then letting it all out. And then there's another pregnant pause before breathing again. Those pregnant pauses where you're, you're concentrating on that in-breath and you're concentrating on that out-breath. The second where you're not really concentrating on anything, that's the gap. Um, now beyond there, is there I, there's not much to be said. You just sort of do that and it's a way that can bring you to... to this is not intentional taking deep breath and exhaling though, right? It's oh, kind yeah. of follow-up, or is it intentional? I would say it's intentional, yeah. And it's a, a deep breath practice, you know. Um, breathing down into your belly. And you know, these are, these are little tiny snippets that were probably carved in rock or something, I don't know, um, 1,500 years ago. But um, those are the exact same um, you know, practices that are 30-minute meditation that you can get on iTunes, right? So, I mean, if um, 
if you want to explore like that particular exercise, there's a lot of breathing exercises um, that you can find online to, to bring you to a to deeper place. But, um, but yeah, they're definitely breathing exercises. And one of the, the um, things I think is so key is the sort of link between uh, breath, awareness, and consciousness. <laughs> you know, you place your awareness in the breath, um, and then they, they start to play with that. And they, you know, as you can see in the, the little snippets that I read, starting to actually feel as if you're breathing through your entire body. Starts to bring the awareness to the body and the energy flow to the body. And brings you to this really sort of charged state. Um, and what I found is that there's a lot of, uh, people call them kriyas in, in, um, in yoga. They actually be releases, like physical releases, like myclonic jerks. Do you know what a myclonic jerk is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's like when you're just about to fall asleep and you're about to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, literally. That you can feel as if you're getting into the state. It sounds like you've had that. I want you to talk more on that because I've been experiencing so many, more than I used to in meditation. Kriyas. What exactly does it mean? Like, Kriya? Yeah. Uh, Kriya? Kriya. Somebody Kriya, else? Kriya in Latin means dancing. Oh, really? <laughs> it's a medical term for your form movements, yeah. Huh, huh. The way I see it is, I mean, the way I've read about it is that those are, are actual sort of moments in time where your body can really be releasing some of those memories and experiences and store tensions, and that that's a side effect of that. But again... There's other people in the audience probably know more about it than I do. One time, um, I had no idea what Kundalini Yoga was, and I just went, and um, I started doing it, and I'm like, wow, this is hard. And, um, but then they had a chant uh, time where you could come at 4 o'clock in the morning until 6, and you would chant this particular chant. And um, I had no idea what the chant was or anything, and I, I just started doing this chant. And all of a sudden, I was in the sea of the chant. Like, I didn't know it in my head, but I was able to do it in rhythm and everything. And the next thing I know, it's like I'm gone. I'm like invisible, just doing this chant. But then all of a sudden, I just felt this energy starting in my yoni. You know, you hear about Kundalini yeah, yeah. rising, yeah, yeah. but I, I always imagined it like in the back for some reason coming up. <laughs> I don't know why, but and but it was right like central yoni. And it started spinning and rising. And I was so fascinated by it that in my mind I looked, you know, and then it stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it was just so yummy, you know. Um, just and, and so, like, my question was afterwards, like, is that, like, always there and I'm just not present to it? You know? Like these different subtle energies that move through us all the time? Um, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think that you do have energy. That's in all the time. But, I mean, my question was, what do you do with that? So that starts to happen. What is it? You just leave it alone. That was weird. Uh, you know, um, I feel like it can be really transformative. That that's that's not a place to stop. That that's something that we need to sort of pursue because there there is something that it's working through in our bodies. Yeah, I think that was the evidence for me is that, you know, I think <clears throat> being in this human body, we <clears throat> we get so attached thinking this is who we are, and then there's these experiences that happen through the body, because that's how we know things, right? That through the body that gets, that helps us get we're not the body. And then that's where my connection is to spirit or God, you know, um, without having to believe any dogma, but to have this relationship with this energy that's like moving through me, got my back, holding me, you know, like always. And um, and I think that's what it is for me anyway. That's, that's why I like experiencing. You know, I guess you were asking about, you've sort of said several times, anti, anti-theist. <laughs> uh, you know, what is, uh, Tantra's, I mean, certainly there's pantheons of gods, but it's more, it's much more than that. Um, what, is, what does it have to offer from a religious perspective? I would say that there's, there's also a transformative aspect that I've seen in a lot of these uh, to devotion, to devotion. Now, well, 
what does that mean if you're if you don't believe in a god? <laughs> that's that's kind of tough. But I think that there are ways that that you can you can eke it in there. Certainly, there's ways that we do it from a Buddhist perspective, where there's not necessarily a god from a traditional sense. But there's something there's something about um, there's something about getting the ego out of the way through the process of devotion, uh, um, humbling, sincere, thankful devotion. That that is that is definitely something that's enforced in all of those those exercises. If I was able to equate the deities that I'm the, that the scripture is teaching me or encouraging me to be devoted to, if I was able to equate them with virtues, like symbols of virtues, then I that would make sense for me. And I think that probably a lot of people in this room would feel the same. Mm-hmm. That might be what they're for. You know, I mean, certainly Kali is a pretty intense externalization of the. So, what do you guys want to do? Yeah. Oh, I just had another question. I think I, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying, because you said it. I don't know if you said it. Tantra meant thread. That it that it is that it is threaded through all of these different um, Indian religious. Thread, um, uh, like weave. That there's a little because, like, she's talking about Kundalini, mm-hmm. you know, and it sounds like those are related, and that there's some of it in Buddhism, right? So, I mean, uh, Tantra is, is again, it's it's a, it's a British word, the way we think of it now, it's a British word. When the British came through and said, Oh, Tantras, forget that stuff, go back to the Upanishads, that's your, you know, um, so it's it's difficult, um think of it like it had meaning in, in a cultural way at the time that it was actually happening. So it's actually the way that we think of the word Kundalini or the way that we think of the word yoga is probably much more like what the word Tantra meant at the time. It's sort of the writings of the time that were encapsulating a lot of these things. But the word Tantra literally means um, literally means fabric in one of its contexts. I, I took a screenshot of something I read this morning that I think captures it pretty well. So this is this is um, Nisargadatta Maharaj. Like everything mental, the so-called law of causation contradicts itself. No thing in existence has a particular cause. The entire universe contributes to the existence of even the smallest thing. Nothing could be as it is without the universe being what it is. So it's really the, the fabric of existence. That's, that's what people think of when they think of Tantra, all of it. Each thread connected to every other thread. The yeah. idea of that creates for a sense of security in a way. It really feels like meaning and purpose to everything. The, the idea of everything being, every little tiny thing in the universe being connected to every larger thing or event. Um, creates for a sense of security and meaning and purpose mm-hmm. to even the mundane. I find it provides a a, a better moral compass. Mm. You know, people think in terms of uh, you know what you do, what you say. I think it needs to go deeper than that. You know, that if, if everything is interconnected, then then it really puts a pretty big emphasis on putting love into the world and compassion and your underlying intent rather than necessarily what you say, what you do. Yeah. I think you're nice to For some reason, this is stuck in my head right now, but I've, I've always equated it, Tantra with an exchange of energy and, and it doesn't necessarily need to be meant to be um, sexual, but it could be any, it, just energy exchange and maybe in that way in sort of that brings in a thread thing as well it's an exchange of uh, making it sense yeah. <laughs> yeah. and even the energy that you were creating with your mantra mm-hmm. it was an exchange of energy in itself too yeah i don't know that's just what was coming up for me talking about this and not necessarily even an exchange mm-hmm. you know it's going to be just yourself right yeah. that sort of well there's an exchange within yourself right 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 right, right.
Right. Well, um, I mean, the, that's sort of what uh, what made me read a couple of these books. Right. And I tried to trying to figure out what it actually is and how it's it's different. I think that um, to answer your question, um, it's not. Maybe. I mean, as I said, it's something that was in retrospect applied um, to a, to an era of of writing. A, and then B, that era of writing was, you know, covered by a thousand years pervasive all throughout India that um, affected um, yogis, the idea of kundalini energy, uh, a lot of Buddhist practices at the time, uh, and that's probably, I would, it's fair to say, where Buddhism picked up that stuff along the way and brought it to us now. Um, and then in a more sort of explicit way, jumped the Himalayas and sort of stayed up there in Tibet in a way that are, are more sort of body meditation practice, body and breath focused meditation practices. Uh, so it doesn't have, a, Kundalini doesn't have a doctrine. I'm sorry, Tantra doesn't have a doctrine. It doesn't have a, an initiation process. Um, there are um, sort of Dravidian lineages that are associated with Tantra, like the Agora and the Sadhu that, that might have uh, dark sides and initiation practices, I don't know. <laughs> but that's not necessarily what Tantra is. Um, just a couple words that, you know, got to us through here. But <laughs> it's important to look at them. I mean, you can understand it through a cultural uh, and historic perspective, but it's not a club uh, with, a, with a central set of beliefs. Does that make sense at all? <laughs> so basically, like the British came in and saw these practices happening on the weekends with people, named it Tantra, and then it has thus emerged into these understandings today. Like, we're trying to simplify it. And where did it, like, what was the original yeah, well, emergence, I guess? Of yeah, I mean, the, uh, the original emergence were these um, tracks, these tantras, what they called tantras, uh, like Vedas or sutras, uh, written in a, a certain era um, that survived and were practiced through various lineages that have reached us today through a multitude of sources. Um, and I think that probably the primary source would be the Indian and Tibetan traditions that were people that were doing it consistently through the British spite of the British one, I'd say. And when the British came through, I think they were probably um, more scared of it. I mean, they're trying to control, they're an occupying force, right? And they're trying to compare people, control people, and then they've got this goddess here, Kali, you know, the, the chopping off someone's head and dancing on, a, on dead bodies and so forth. They're just trying to, uh, they're just, they, I mean, they were really seeing as, as a primitive people that they were trying to civilize. Yeah. Were they kind of coming in with their head instead of and, and freaked out by all the experience that was happening? 
it's like, that's what it seemed like from what you're saying. It's like people were having these experiences and they were in their body and they were moving energy. And there's power and, in that. And there's power in that. And then people came in who were like talking heads and not in touch with anything else. Well, it's Georgian and Victorian show. England, you know. Yeah. And they, were, they, they just wanted their tea, right? That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> Right, the upon right. <laughs> right. Right. Or like, yeah, not, not an exchange of energy. You know? And to me, that's, that's maybe that's the group of stuff that got labeled. Maybe, well, and maybe that's where misogyny was started there in that realm. Because before you were saying they were, you know, they were relishing the goddess and they were supporting that power within on the feminine level, and then that came to a halt. And they said, oh no, that's not okay. Let's go back up to the head. You know. And them as that that as well as, as others. Yeah, I mean I think of it as almost like some sort of. Uh, I mean, you you mess with culture, right? You you can really. Um, I mean, they were saying go back, go back two thousand years, right? Forget everything that your culture has done in the last two thousand years to come up with this beautiful stuff. This is your stuff. Hey, everybody that wants to be, you know, hey, all the Indian people that wanted jobs at the, uh, you know. Uh, take this stuff, this is what you start to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it really, you know, there's a lot of writings about people you know, squelching what had been the traditions that had been. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Ramakrishna, for example, um, who was in that same period, was very, very tantrically influenced um, on many, many levels, but as he passed it on to his successors who were more interested in building empires and so forth, mm -hmm. that, that stuff just gets squelched. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.